0: Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison.
1: And I'm Erica. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle Maniacs can find us.
0: Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash x, and now TikTok. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more this episode and beyond and don't forget you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com and you can visit us at bcthebeatles.com, where you can enter our giveaway and yes we are in the final days of our giveaway quite literally you have until i believe midnight december 16th to enter and we'll be shipping out some Beatles goodies to the winner the following day. Keep an eye on your email and uh, we'll do a quick turnaround of those guys. So very exciting. And today will be a great episode as well. So we're really excited.
1: Yes, today we'll be talking all things Mal Evans with Dr. Kenneth Womack and Mal's son, Gary Evans. I'm so excited so cool. for this. Yeah, yeah. So Mal, of course, was the Beatles' loyal roadie and friend, the six-foot-three gentle giant who might be best known for joyously clanging the hammer in the Let It Be and Get Back films during Maxwell's Silver Hammer.
0: Yeah, he was like a breakout star of that documentary. And, you know, in 1962, so Mal was a husband and father with a steady job as a telecom engineer. But, you know, his life would be forever changed because he heard the Beatles— Play the Cameron Club, like many other people in their circle. So a year later, Mal quit his job, threw his lot in with the Beatles, and he served in endless roles for the band, including, but not limited to, driver, bodyguard, roadie, guitar stringer, keeper of the drugs, probably most importantly, and provider of tea and sympathy. And, you know, Mal was wherever the Beatles were, and uh, that's pretty much evidenced by his talent for photobombing. Love to photobomb those guys. And he was very, very essential to their operations.
1: Yeah, he sure was. But he was even more than that, which we're finding out only now. Not only was he a close friend and confidant of all the Beatles, but at times he even contributed to some of their most enduring songs. He himself was also a huge Elvis fan, starstruck by the celebrities he met and hoping one day he'd also achieve stardom. After the Beatles broke up, Mal continued to work for them when they called him for solo projects, but he never found the same sense of belonging that he had as a member of the Beatles entourage. He also tried his hand as a producer and a songwriter and was a champion for the band Badfinger, sometimes their only champion at Apple. As the 1970s progressed, a series of unfortunate events led him to a life of depression and drug use. And in January of 1976, Mal died tragically, shot in his home by the Los Angeles police.
0: But shortly before his death, Mal completed a memoir chronicling his time with the Beatles. The project was scrapped when he died, and unfortunately, the manuscript was lost. The details of the book were shrouded in mystery, along with the exact circumstances surrounding his death. However, thankfully, the manuscript was eventually found and returned to the Evans family. And Mal son kept the manuscript along with Mal's private archives of photos and diaries until he felt the time was right for his father's biography to be written.
1: And that time came around 2021 when Mal's star turn in the Get Back film came to pass, along with Peter Jackson naming his revolutionary audio software Mal as a tribute to him. So that brought Mal much more to the forefront, and then Gary brought the archives to renowned Beatles author Kenneth Womack. Ken took the material and ran with it, conducting hundreds of interviews with the people mentioned in Mal's writings to further flesh out the story. The result is the new biography, Living the Beatles Legend, the Untold Story of Mal Evans. This is the first biography of the Beatles' roadie and the first book in a two-volume series. Volume two, focusing on the archives themselves, will be released next year.
0: Yeah. And we've both read the book. We loved it so much. Mm -hmm. We were texting back and forth the entire time. It has so many revelations about Mal and the Beatles and their crazy times together. So amazing. It's a very quick read. It's fantastic. And, you know, we're so, so excited today to welcome Ken Womack and Gary Evans together to the podcast but first we've talked about mal so let's chat a little bit about ken and gary professor ken womack is one of the world's preeminent Beatles scholars he is the author of a two-volume biography of george martin which we welcomed him on the podcast much earlier in our history to Mm -hmm. uh, chat about that the books themselves are called maximum volume and sound pictures other books that ken has written include john lennon 1980 the last days in the life the cambridge Companion to the Beatles, and Solid State, The Story of Abbey Road and The End of the Beatles. He's also authored five novels. He writes frequently about the Beatles and other musical topics for Salon.com, and he's the host of the Everything Fab Four podcast. Currently, Ken's a professor of English and popular music at Monmouth University in New Jersey. And again, this is his second time with us on BC the Beatles, and we are very excited to have him back to talk about Mal.
1: So excited. So excited. Yes. Man, does he do a lot in the Beatles world.
0: Oh my gosh. This guy is busy.
1: Yeah. You know, that saying like Beyonce has the same number of hours in her day as you do. I feel like you could like (laughs) substitute in Ken Womack. Like he does so many things.
0: I know. I think every time I see him, I'm like, how do you have time to do all the things? It blows my mind. Incredible.
1: And Ken is accompanied by Gary Evans, who is Mal's son. He worked closely with Ken on his dad's biography. He offered unprecedented access to the archives and also hours and hours of his own unique recollections of his dad and his dad's close friends, the Beatles. And Gary has said the following about his experience working on Mal's biography. He says, quote, My dad meant the world to me. He was my hero. Before Ken joined the project, I thought I knew the story of my dad, but what I knew was in monochrome. Fifteen months later, it's like The Wizard of Oz, Dad's favorite film, because Ken has added so much color, so much light to this story. Ken has shown me that Dad was the Beatles' greatest friend. He was lucky to meet them, but they had more good fortune with Dad walking down the cavern steps for the first time.
0: Ain't it the truth? Where would the Beatles be with Mount Mel? Really, yeah. Yeah. So before we start and get into this fantastic interview, firstly, we had a little bit of trouble with Gary's sound. We cleaned it up the best we could. Erica did a bang up job. This is all Erica doing the editing.
1: So if you hate it, don't at me.
0: (laughs) Don't at her. She did an amazing job. Trust me with what we had. Um, But we do apologize for any fuzzy audio. Uh, Hang in there with us because it is wonderful. Gary is a great human. He has so many lovely things to say, so many good stories and insights about his dad. And this episode, trust us, is more than worth a listen, despite the rough moments, but hang in there and you will not be disappointed. And secondly, very, very important note here. As you might have guessed, this episode will discuss gun violence and death by suicide. So please, please take care when listening. If it at all triggers you or You are worried about that. We totally get it. And we will see you next time. But with that being said, Gary and Ken, welcome to Because the Beatles. How are you guys? Good. What's up, Ken? Hello, Ken. How are
2: things?
1: Things are fine. We're so happy to have you both here. So let's get this started. Ken, let's start with you. You've written about so many different Beatles topics. What made you want to take on this project?
3: Well, like everybody, I was interested in Mal simply for existing in World, right? Always had seen him everywhere, and he's photobombing constantly. But I never imagined writing about him until indeed Gary contacted me through our mutual friend, Simon Weitzman, at the beginning of COVID. And uh, he said, would you like to tell my dad's story? And I was in, I was excited. You know, I adore Gary, and knowing him was enough for me to want to be involved. Things took a decidedly more interesting turn when Gary said, you know, do you want to see the stuff? And of course, I wanted to see the stuff. And uh, that has made a significant difference, you know? And in fact, Gary then went on an expedition for a while and even found more stuff. So we were able to really accentuate the archives with lots of material, photographs, et cetera. And um, that's how we got started. And then we began doing a few hours each week on Zoom. I interviewed Gary more than anyone else (laughs) for this book uh, by a mile. And uh, that's how we got started as far as as that aspect of the process went. And then I also, fortunately or unfortunately, because of COVID, we had a number of students who had time on their hands. And we had uh, five graduate students at one point working on this project. They were excited because I told them that it was top secret. And as soon as you do that, they're like, yeah, you know, I'm in. Uh, And then we had one undergraduate who was working really closely with us, um, still works on the project, Carly Migli-Reese. She just went in hook, line, and sinker and and was actually our photo editor uh, and works on the project and is gearing up for volume two. So we've had a strong team from the beginning.
1: I can imagine that it's just every scholar's dream to be able to discover and go through a previously unexplored wealth of of original primary sources? What was that like to go through Mal's archives?
3: Well, I was stunned by the photos that Gary was sharing with me. I'd never seen them before. I mean, Mal and Ringo on horseback, that's such a fish-out-of-water photo, right? I mean, it just it still blows my mind to look at it. You know, moments like that. But then at the same time, you also have, as, as you just said, Erica, all of this contemporaneous information. Sometimes down to the hour, you know. So for the first time, we're able to really pinpoint those moments in the Beatles story, and it it was quite fascinating. Um, and what it also meant was that I had a bigger job on my hands because when we started, and this is where those grad students came in, calling all of the names from the material. There were thousands of folks involved, you know, at, at one level or another. So that meant trying to interview everybody who was alive and. Uh, I came darn close to covering all of the folks who were mentioned in the manuscripts. And so then I sought them out to get their side of the story, right? And, you know, of course, problematically, they're four decades old Mm
0: -hmm. as far
3: as their memories. But the good thing was that I was able to say, well, it says right here on March 3rd, 1968, you were at this event. Does that jog your memory?
1: Oh, that's a great help.
3: Yeah, so it was it was just it was very unique in terms of scholarship for me at least to be able to work at that kind of granular level. Usually I'm having to create conjecture from a much higher altitude.
1: Well, it's so interesting. I love I love a footnote. So, you know, I always have a bookmark in the front and a bookmark in the back uh-huh. to be able to reference all the footnotes. And this one was so much fun because you had Mal's original writings supplemented with interviews that Ken, you did as recently as this year. And Gary's recollections of being there with your dad at the time, and it's just, it's so rich on so many levels. You don't get to see that too often in a new work.
3: Yeah, we were talking to people right up until press time. I think I spoke to Pete Best this summer.
0: Something that people might not know, I didn't actually until I saw you guys present this launch in LA, is that Mal started writing his own memoirs. And I know those were a great help to you guys. Did he actually finish it? And will we get to read what he wrote?
3: Yeah, so he did complete them in December 1975. He had a really great process, which we now understand soup to nuts. His girlfriend, Fran, helped him get the deal with Grosset. And um, he then put together a team, sort of like we just described. He had two friends from Capitol um, who had worked there. Joanne Lennard, um, who was, a, I believe, a secretary, and her boyfriend, a guy named John Hornley. And John was the art director there. They both had some time on their hands. And so Mal said, okay, Joanne, you're gonna be the steno. In fact, Gary has all of her stenographer's books. She would do a process. They had about 20 sessions where Mal would dictate to her. He put together what I call the 1975 notebook, which are all of his memories, just little jotted down memories and uh, he would dictate text to Joanne. Um, Joanne would also have a little cassette player running and we have several of the cassettes too so we're oh, able wow. to check the cassettes with the the stenographer notes and then of course with the typescript. So they did this about 20 times. they added a section at the end about mal's early life uh, probably at the request of uh, Robert Markel the editor. And uh, who I also talked to, I think he's 96 or 97. And wow. uh, at that point, the book was mostly done. And then Hornley, since he was art director at Capitol, Mal had clearly put him on the project so that John could, uh, could handle the art. So John's role was to take several of the photographs that Mal had selected. And we can ascertain, I think, all of his selections at this point. And he had those made into transparencies or negatives. So those were ready to be mm-hmm. transmitted to the press. There were two covers for the book created. One of them is a photo of uh, Mal's roadies case with lots of stickers on it and his hat. And then another, which I I imagine, it seemed like, I don't know what you think, Gary, but of the two of them, the other one seemed more likely to have ended up the, as being the cover. And it was sort of a kind of Western motif comic book-like cover of Mal. Yeah, that very mid-70s. It was kind of a fun cover. It was a drawing. And I asked Joanne, actually, if John had drawn that, and she didn't remember. Fair enough. it's quite a long time ago.
0: One thing that I find so fascinating in the story of the archives and everything is that Yoko Ono actually played kind of a strange part in saving them.
3: Not even strange. Just a heroic part. I mean, she stepped on the gas when she needed to. Very much. Yeah. And when... Our friend, Lena was discovered the materials in in the basement of the New York Life building, and she wasn't getting any traction from the publisher about returning these materials to the family. In fact, they wanted to throw them away or make them into a legal issue. She marched up to the Dakota and left a note. Yoko leapt into action. Neil Aspinall undoubtedly was working with the lawyers, and they, they turned the whole thing around very quickly. And Gary can tell you, I mean, the poignancy of it was really registered about a year later when, when they met up with Yoko in her hotel suite, right, Gary? The fall of
2: 1989, we met Yoko uptown in a lovely hotel suite and we really bonded with her. Um, I've always had the problem with being overweight and she said, just relax, you know, and she was, she knew where my vibe was. And I was, But it's the three of us at ease. Uh, such a lovely lady to be in the company of.
1: That's so sweet. Yeah. And as for the woman who unearthed the documents, you know, not all heroes wear capes. That's a pretty crazy story.
2: So at the end of the evening, we were talking about John's and Mal's demise. And Mm -hmm. a couple of minutes later, we just hugged and sobbed for five minutes, just remembering the pair of them. Both by age 40, by the gun. So tragic. Totally different circumstances to the do them. Still.
1: It's awful. Yeah. What was it like revisiting your dad's life during the process of the book?
2: Through the prism of almost half a century. It seems such a long time ago, but not really long time ago in my mind. And of course, everyone's memory is subjective. I think my memory is pretty good. Ken's writing to really taken me back, made me revisit the good times and the bad times. I love my dad so much. You know, he he tended to put his family on the back burner, but I knew he loved everybody. I I really love the guy. I've read the book three times. I'm going to start it a fourth time. I see something different every time I read it. Ken and I talk about going down rabbit holes. I must know thousands of rabbits by now, because Uh every time... (laughs) Every time I um, revisit the book, it prompts a different memory. My beetle life effectively stopped when I was 12 years old. My dad left us almost 50 years ago. My dad lived his life in compartments, and I have my beetle compartment up to the age of 12. It's um, bittersweet on many levels. Sometimes I think, Mal, dad, Don't go down the Beatles steps. Let's see how our life would have panned out in Liverpool. What would he have done? I don't know. But without my dad, the Beatles would have been a whole different animal.
1: Oh, yeah. He really seemed to ground them in, in a way.
2: Yeah, he was the right fit. It was a reciprocal relationship.
1: Going through the archives, I'm sure there were some things in there that surprised you. Did any of it change how you view your relationship with your dad?
2: I wish I could have reached out to him more. When when you're 14, it's hard enough living with your parents, I guess. But when you're estranged and they're living several thousand miles away and we couldn't communicate that much. I think if I, hindsight, I could have reached out to him and maybe grounded him a bit more, but you just don't know.
0: Yeah, and you've just mentioned... The Beatles part of your life was the first 12 years. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship with the Beatles themselves?
2: Four guys. They had four very individual relationships with them. Ringo was the Piper. He, he had such a lovely play about him with children. He was magnificent. You know, he'd goof around with you. He'd take an interest. He always had the latest gadgets. And then Paul, for some reason... I went round Paul's house I had to look really good, not a hair out of place, Yeah, uh, even polished my tunes. <laughs> Very strange looking back. Uh, and John was just John, and I said to Ken, that voice, that's the voice I remember of John. Really fantastic. And George, for me, was a magician. He'd go round his house, the smell of incense or or something else maybe. Something. And uh, <laughs> this magical, And he'd give you spray paints. You know, you're six or seven years old and a guy gives you paint and says, go and paint my wall, whatever you want to do. Just very surreal. They would like, my uncles never really formulated the fact that my dad worked for them. They were just his friends primarily. And that is the common theme in my mind, friendship.
1: One of my favorite things in the book was the picture of you with the Beatles on the, the Mad Day Out shoot when you're kind of looking to the back because they're all looking off. So.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. That memory is burnt in the back of my head. There's John and Paul looking up in at the lens, and that's why I'm not looking at the lens.
1: That's great. So casual.
2: And it looks like something out of a Goobering movie. It's like something out of a 2001 set. The way it's lit and the way it looks... That is one of my favorite photographs of the Beatles, let alone I'm in
0: it. It's so cool. So let's discuss a little bit about Mal himself. Ken and Gary are the foremost Mal experts in the entire world. Mal's story, like the Beatles, starts in Liverpool. Of course, he was a native Liverpudlian. Talk a little bit about how he met the
3: Beatles. Like what drew him to them at the start? I mean, it was the cavern. He was in love with rock and roll. Like so many, he was drawn to that underground club. Right, Gary?
2: Indeed. It's
3: like catnip. As soon as he heard the noise emanating from that cellar, nobody was going to stop him going to have a look. Yeah, and you know, one of the interesting things is he discovers them, of course, walking around the cavern quarters, they call it now. And uh, that probably signaled what we started to learn from folks who work with Mal at the GPO, and that was that he probably took a lot of long lunches <laughs> Just enjoying the world, which is, Mal was a tourist. If he hadn't joined them in August 63, he would have been sick. Yeah, I don't know how much longer he had there.
1: (laughs) Well, didn't one of his bosses say he's not going to get a promotion anyway, so he should go with the Beatles. He should do this.
0: Yeah. One of the things I thought was so funny about Mal's personality was he was so fascinated by celebrity, and he had these dreams of becoming famous himself, but he was sort of destined to live in the periphery to be one minute you're
2: a GPO engineer in Liverpool and the next minute you're at a big Hollywood party and there's everybody. My dad just went along with the ride, just loved every minute, every moment of it. I think my dad had a better time with the Beatles for years than the Beatles did, of course. <laughs> he was in awe of certain people, but he, he could mix mix it with the best of them. Um I think Liverpool DNA is a great grounding for the ability to get on with people and, and and to be remembered by people. Mal
3: could talk to anybody. You know, it didn't matter. He had that gift of gab. And, and we have to imagine, right, Gary, that he must have been thinking all his life about seeing the world, and suddenly there was this opportunity.
2: Yeah, and it was a very big world back in the early 60s. People didn't travel much then.
0: Beatles fans associate Mal with that anvil. And for our listeners, we're looking right now at Ken's bobblehead of Mal, oh. where he's holding the hammer, the very famous hammer, Maxwell Silverhammer, and the anvil. One thing that you guys, you know, mentioned in the book, and I actually didn't know, is that he contributed lyrics to songs like Here, There and Everywhere and Fixing a Hole. Obviously, the famous story about Mal and Paul in the airplane when they came up with Sgt. Pepper from Salt and Pepper. But he ended up not getting credits, public credits for his contributions. To me, when I read the book, he seems sort of disappointed, but ultimately was okay with that. But but was he really? Do you think he was really okay with not getting his proper due? Yeah,
2: what, what amazed me was the lazy way my dad's standing next to Paul, you know, direct input into how long and winding roads going to be And if you multiplied the amount of times my dad would have been Intimate, next to Paul, in the recording studio, 3 o'clock in the morning, times we don't see my dad's input. It, it makes your mind think, wow, you must probably contributed
3: more than items you've just
2: reeled off.
3: And that's certainly true. And, you know, I think my read of it is that Mal was of two minds. Did he want more credit? You know, on some level, sure. He's living a kind of double life, as we've already spoken of. So his life is expensive. Does he need more money? Sure. But he was dead serious about his brief, which was to support the Beatles in any way, shape, or form. And the idea that he was told about Lennon and McCartney being a big brand would have been enough for him. He was just glad. But for example, the Let It Be story, he didn't care. And wouldn't care now that Paul talks about the story being Mother Mary. It wouldn't bother him at all.
1: So we need to talk about this because the origin of the Mother Mary line in Let It Be comes across as kind of a quiet bombshell in your book. It comes up a few times that Paul's original inspiration for the song was a vision he had of Mal, not his (laughs) mother. And we talked to Paul Muldoon a couple of weeks ago about the Paul McCartney The Lyrics book, and this version of the story isn't mentioned anywhere there. There's even a whole podcast episode about Let It Be on the book's companion podcast with no mention of this. But there doesn't seem to be a doubt from Mao's perspective, at least, that this was the real origin of the song. How do we square these two stories, especially considering that this is one of the most well-known Beatles song origin stories and one that Paul tells all the time?
3: You know, we only have Mao's word to go on and what, what we can corroborate. So you brought up that last line of here, there and everywhere. Mal had written that down in the blue notebook that we have from 1966 but what was exciting was I then spoke to somebody who saw Mal on the 66 tour after that and uh they were singing here there and everywhere and this person without me asking said Mal said by the way that he wrote that last line is that true and I thought I think it probably is because we're looking right here at the blue notebook which has the same thing and this person's remembering it from 50 years ago, closing in on 60 years ago. Mal kept contemporaneous notes and recorded his memories at the time. And his memory of that event is Paul being in Rishikesh and uh, uh, having that dream about him and Mal being a comforting, I don't know, mothering, brotherly-like figure. And the next thing you know, we have, uh, during the White Album, the demo is recorded where you can hear Paul singing I believe that's the mother Malcolm version. And then, of course, it later morphs into brother Malcolm. And they're kind of teetering. I think it was John Lennon who said, if you're going to do it, call him brother Malcolm. <laughs> Somehow that bothered John. <laughs> By the way, it was our original title for the book, Brother Malcolm.
1: Oh, I like that. Lovely. Yeah, so
3: yeah. Me, uh, they felt like it might be a connotation with Malcolm X that would confuse. Oh, you know, got it. Consumers. And actually, it was uh, Gary's aunt, uh, Barbara, one of Mal's three sisters, who said to me that she always thought Mal mothered them. She thought that was perfect. So We should actually call it Mother Malcolm. It
1: seems perfect. He's so good at, at I think, what you call the tea and sympathy aspect of his job, anticipating their needs so well.
3: You know, I think Mal would have been fine with uh, any of these answers, because at the end of the day, for him, it's a great song. He loved it. Yeah, His, his favorite beat.
1: Yeah, Paul. You chose Paul and Mal as the cover photo for, I think both covers have a different picture of Paul and Mal. And Mal seems to have such a complex relationship to Paul and with Paul that really seemed to affect his life. Can you talk a little bit about how that relationship impacted Mal over the years?
3: He adored him. I mean, he adored Paul. Uh, He had, I mean, at times... Almost a hero worship for him. And we can all see why. I mean, if you watch somebody like we saw in the Get Back docuseries create Get Back out of thin air, and Mal must have seen something like that dozens, if not more times. It must be incredible. They were also just good friends. They like being together. You know, Mal, as Lily would say, was a good time. Everybody wanted Mal, (laughs) which is why things get more complex when they move to London. And he lives almost equidistant from the four boys. So, I mean, everybody wants to be with Mal. He adores them unabashedly. That's always good in a relationship. Was it complex? It certainly became complex in the later years, but everything was becoming complex. And Mal foresaw that it would, because he could tell as soon as they stopped touring that that closeness that he really loved among them was going to wane, and it it did. He may have still had individually close relationships with them, but they didn't have the same relationships together.
1: Yeah. And it seems like the one thing that he really wanted was that that community in a way with the Beatles. And he was doing everything he could to, to get it
3: even afterwards. Right. He'd be the butt of jokes. He would make himself vulnerable so that they could get along. It didn't matter. The end game for him was always the same with the Beatles. And, uh, you know, he's one of the many people we should be thankful for that we have all of this great music and and this incredible story that survives into the present day. He's not the main character. He wouldn't want to be the main character, but he embodies the character of it, which I think is what's perhaps more interesting. The sad part for me is uh, the way that Paul, for legal circumstances, has to distance himself from Mal. I'm not sure he handled that very well, and he might not think he handled that very well Hmm. now, right? You know, to say... you know, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, you could just hear the Eastman's instructing him. Okay, you can't use Mal anymore because that's part of the business.
1: Mm-hmm. Mal was astute. He analyzed that pretty astutely when he was going back over it.
3: Oh, yeah. But it still hurt him. And like anybody would be if they were really close to a friend. I mean, is, do you see that, Gary, in, in the same way? Or Yeah,
2: exactly how you've explained. My dad loves them all, but he had a particular... Affinity with Paul. On one level, it was a very simple relationship. They got money by ownership. We talked about... Yeah, I think my dad felt his primary aim was for the Beatles to be become the best band in the world. Tick. Uh, make sure they have everything they want. Tick. Make sure they look after me reciprocally. Um, not so much a tick. At the end of the day, A, my dad's put so much input into those four guys and into the People Project. And wouldn't it have been nice when he left them? They said, Mel, we love you. Here's a token of our appreciation. There wasn't a plan B where my dad had a pension pot. As individuals, they didn't seem to reach out to him as much as I would have liked them to.
1: I agree. I was, as a reader, just kind of enraged every time I felt like he had to go ask for a loan or he was having, you know, no pension. Or even when um, Zach Starkey told you you were poor, Yeah, Mal tried as hard as he could to justify it or at least understand that there were benefits that were greater than money. But at the same time, money would have been nice too.
2: If you look at the journey my dad took, the primary thing is friendship. What did he get out of it at the end? apart from the fact that he became very depressed and it all just piled on top of him. It's such a sad story. Yeah. Uh, exacerbated by the fact that you put any individual in that pressure cooker of 1963, coming out the other end, and not have ups and downs about the pressure.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it was just your dad. The 70s seemed to be a time when everybody involved in that kind of unraveled in different ways.
2: And Los Angeles mid seventies. If you're very happy, you're very happy. If if it's the flip side, you end up like my dad. Did. Yeah. Yeah. But the the flip side is the the those lovely images of my dad in Get Back.
1: Oh yeah, he was the star of the show of the Get Back when it when the expanded version came out two years ago.
2: Have you ever seen the David Frost interview with my dad?
1: No, I haven't. I was just you know reading about that oh, at the end must, of the book.
2: You must look it up. I will. That explains the whole process, and, and we were in a car and it's raining, and it's three o'clock in the morning. He turns to me and he explains to my dad why my mother or brother Malcolm is not going to be the final cut. <laughs> and my dad at the end goes, really sheepish, lovely, one of the most beautiful smiles. It's, it's worth watching it just from a dad's smile Aww. when he comes to the conclusion of Aww. why he's not
3: in back it Bay. It, it's really wonderful, isn't it, Ken? It's a wonderful piece of film that uh yeah, it's been out there actually for it was in a nineteen seventy-five TV special called A Salute to the Beatles. At this point, the entire thing may now be on uh YouTube. Yes. Um mm-hmm. several people, George Martin and others. And uh there are lots of revelations in there. It's you know, it's just interesting analog to digital, right? How so much of that has been lying in wait all this time and people simply didn't access it.
1: Well, now I'm looking forward to watching that later, for sure.
0: Yeah, same. Um, You know, we talked about Mal in the studio after the Beatles stopped touring, but I really wanted to bring up another band, another Apple artist, that Mal was really instrumental (laughs) in um, getting involved in their early career, which is Badfinger. He was producer, really, but wasn't really allowed to take that credit. Can you
3: talk a little bit about his involvement with them? He was a good a and r guy mal evans i mean he knew a good sound he saw incredible potential in them he championed them at apple and uh they were rightly signed to a contract and of course then they go into this weird oblivion because not too long afterward a con man enters their midst in the form of alan klein and um a new destiny is set and mal is trying to keep pushing them through that strange political morass. And I made sure we went into some depth about that because it was a really defining moment for him and really cruel what Alan Klein did. Gary was speaking a few moments ago about lack of pension and other issues. It's not that they're forgiven in this way, but the Beatles are young guys in the early seventies and they're young guys who have no HR background, right? Terrible business sense in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, nothing at all, you know, at best, I mean, they're nouveau riche, and a lot of their money's tangled up at the time, so they're probably thinking about that a lot. And the person who should be handling things only joined them to loot them, and, uh, you know, he's not going to care about the fate of Mal Evans or Neil Aspinall or anybody, mm-hmm. right, or even the Beatles, as we see, I mean. You know, he betrayed George Harrison almost as soon as he could with Brighttunes and just god awful stories. (laughs) I read a thing today for another project. It was an interview with Linda McCartney in 1974. And the person said, When you met up with John recently, did you talk about Alan Klein? She goes, Of course. She said, Of course we did. She said, What happened? She said, John just looked at us and said, Well, you were right about Alan Klein, Paul, and but of course you usually are right. <laughs> you know, um, it was kind of funny, but it wasn't funny, right? I mean, the results of having this person in their midst is devastating. And what he did to Mal, I mean, one of the first things he wants to do is fire Mal and Neil yeah. because he's trying to cut off, of course, the important limbs of the, you know, of John Paul, George, and Ringo. That's what you do if you're in there as a con artist. I hope no budding artists are hearing us now because we don't want this to be a playbook, <laughs> but Alan Neal had the greatest answer, right, on the day that he wanted to fire them, which is, we don't work yes. for you. <laughs> but man, the cost of that was misery because he he puts Neal through misery. Uh, Neal was the target of all of his lawsuits against Apple, <laughs> you know, because he was blaming Neal for his not being renewed in 1973. Uh, by then, Neal was you know, a mess because of what had happened. And of course, we're talking about the other part of the situation, which is Mal, who made it clear that he believed in Bad Finger and wanted to work with them. And it's it's sad, isn't it, Gary, how often your father went to Alan and said, I just want to go do this great thing for all of us and this artist that works for us. Yeah. And I, I'm sure Alan was processing none of it and eventually forbids Mal to work with him. And, of course, we know the result of this. It's tragedy. It's two suicides. <laughs> no matter what, possibly their signature tune, is a top-five hit because one of Alan's subordinates heard it and said, why haven't you put this out?
1: Alan Klein was basically the embodiment of a Sith Lord. He was one of the
3: worst people ever. He really was, and he was there to loot them. Mal really suffered a lot of heartbreak over the guys, especially. Only a few months before Mal's own death, and and we lose our first member of Badfinger. Mm -hmm. Gary, by the way, uh, knew growing up because this was their social circle. You know, this was back in the days when, remember when people had uh, I think rocking rocking uh, chairs on their their front porches, and they would greet people and they knew people and had them over for dinner. Yeah, we don't do this anymore, but 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 they did back then. And and Gary was at Sunday dinner with these guys. You know, so it was. It was a family tragedy. Yeah, Yeah. Beat Ham, the fabled age
2: of 27. How sad is that? And then six years later, Tommy joins it. And Tommy at one point is working in a
3: DIY or hardware store to make any space. He wrote Without You a song that in that day and age, if you really had access to the proceeds, which of course the managers that came after Mal hid from them, he would have retired Yeah, it. it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was an international hit.
1: So it's such a tragedy.
2: Yeah.
3: I always thought Bad Finger were
2: a really, really good band, but not quite the fit for early 70s glam rock. They really did some good music.
1: I agree. My dad introduced them to me as, as the 70s Beatles.
3: Oh, and they were. And they had such upside. Chris Thomas, I spent a lot of time with him this summer. And... He brought up working on those that last album with them, obviously, uh, before Pete's death. And uh, he said that they had incredible upside and in potential. They could have done anything.
1: A uh, special place in hell for Alan Klein. Jesus.
3: One of my
2: favorite memories of Tom Evans is we'd go around his house, my sister, my mom, and myself, and we very inevitably end up on a Sunday going down the path, straight on the piano, getting everybody singing. Uh, The guy was just a party animal. I I really loved Tommy. He was such a nice guy. That sounds so fun. (laughs) He never recovered from Pete dying. He really loved Pete. And then my dad to go, never never recovered from that. He, He was a shell of himself. When John Lennon was killed, murdered rather, in 1980, Tom was distraught, but he was saying, that's how I want to die. Come on, Tommy. Oh, please, man. You yeah.
0: know. Not to dwell on the morose for another second, but Gary, when I sat next to you at dinner yeah. in LA, we talked a lot about your interest in and in, in passion and gun control because of what happened, you know, obviously to your dad and with his obsession with guns. And unfortunately, that's how we lost him.
2: I could never figure out how my dad as a British national got access to a He's not an American citizen. He's a legal, surely. And he also
3: didn't, he, he had a handgun too.
2: Yeah. Never, never figured that out. I don't think my dad is going to kill himself. Otherwise, he would have done it without the cops storming it. But if they'd have stayed outside, it would have been resolved. They wouldn't have had to kill him.
0: Yeah. And I know for a number of years, there was a lot of debate. Was that his intention, you know, of suicide by cop, or was it a situation that just went really, really badly?
3: I don't think there's any two ways about this. And and Gary told me this within an hour of meeting him. Mal engineered that whole business. Mm -hmm. You know, he wrote what is effectively a suicide note the night before with his will. He's telling people how to winterize the house, how to take care of the car. This was by design. And I've heard Gary actually say he feels bad for the cops having to be an instrument of that, you know, yeah. it's all tragic, mm-hmm. right? But he knew what he was doing when he raised the, the rifle, you know, yeah. he knew what cops did. He had said in that very house months earlier, you know, watching gun smoke that that's how he wanted to die in a hail of bullets, Yeah, you know, and he feared it. Gary and I talk about this a lot too. And that is just that, the remarkable differences between then and now, right? There's so many things wrong. Now we could go on. That could be a podcast things that are wrong. Now (laughs) try it on Podbean. (laughs) Where do you start? Yeah. But there are so many things that we are much better at, right? Like mental health care. We understand it a lot more. We may still blow it, but we know what we're blowing. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: You know, Mal was largely untreated. He knew some of the issues. And of course another one of the uh, the inaccuracies in his story is that the Beatles had anything to do with what happened on January 4th, 1976. You know, it was, it just wasn't. It was uh, Gary's mother, who was in a lot of ways the hero of this book, right? I mean, what she took to get to that point and still having not divorced him is incredible. Her belief in him and in their marriage says a lot about her. She was a tough cookie in a lot of the right ways. And she was the person who supported him running off with the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. But just the the very fact that she was going to finally visit a solicitor to talk about divorce was enough for Mal to kind of lose yeah.
1: it.
3: He liked the fantasy of her still believing in him, even though he had done everything for her not to believe in him. I was living with another woman in another country.
1: I think he always genuinely wanted both of those things, right? Like, he seemed very torn.
2: He wanted to come home a hero with a suitcase full of money. But all I ever wanted was more time with my dad. I just wasn't seeing enough of the guy. And even when he was around, I had a lovely connection with my father. But I didn't have quality time with the guy as a child. Because he always had four other people that he had to go and do stuff.
1: So what were some things that for both of you that surprised you about Mal?
2: How popular he was with the opposite sex.
0: <laughs> I think that was probably the most yeah, the most surprising for a lot of us.
3: <laughs> you know, I'm I am actually not surprised that he was. He is funny, he has great gift of gab. He doesn't have to be employed by the Beatles, which uh in itself had to be exciting. I think still would be. And you know, was quite handsome. Oh, yeah. Like Gary, whom you're looking at right now. I mean, these are good looking guys. So they've got it all. Those Evan's genes. It's the Evan's, yes, yeah, the mm-hmm. Evan's DNA.
1: Yeah, those genes are strong.
3: <laughs> you know, Mal was one dimensional to me, right? He was just one dimensional. He was a flat photo, or hundreds of photos, right, that I'd seen of him. Or, you know, some random studio chatter, like John chattering to Mal before she came into the bathroom window. All of it makes sense now because he had a quite a substantial inner life, wasn't an oaf. He had ambitions and aspirations and dreams. What surprised me was how multidimensional he he became and how quickly Um, his love of cinema, you know, which he shared with Gary. I love their stories about going to the movies in the late 60s and early 70s. There was a lot more heft to that person than I realized before.
2: He was a definitely an everyman, wasn't he?
3: Yeah, and he had to be. How do you hang with those guys who are pretty tough customers themselves? You can't be a slouch. Yeah. They all wanted Mel's company. They were jealous of each other.
1: <laughs> well, he sounds like such a wonderful person to hang around with, such a you know smile and effusive and always giving to them. It's lovely. You know, another thing about Valdo that totally surprised me was that he was such a talented songwriter. I didn't know that he would, had a writing credit on that, the Ringo song, You and Me, Babe, which has been in my head constantly since that chapter came up in the book. That's pretty indicative of a talent that we didn't know about from
3: him. No, and he had lots of upside there, too, by the way. I mean, the, the other song they recorded at the Ringo sessions um, called Thinking of You, Thinking of Me, is just a darling tune we didn't we had never even heard it until uh our friend peter hicks had spoken to uh lon of lon and derek van Eaton, and he had remembered the song and was able to recreate it oh my god and uh, of course we have diaries the entry about it and some of the lyrics but it's a magnificent little love song you know in fact i think it's far superior to you and me babe It even has this wonderful piano cadence that Klaus Vormann was there, and he remembered the piano and how it went. Is there a recording? We do have one. I would play it for you, but you can't use it on the air. It's really darling. I talked to Lon. I told him I'd pay for it. I said, let's get in the studio and you do the lead vocal. Let's get a band behind it. My God, that'd be great. That'd be fantastic. In fact, Gary, we should get the students to do that. Yeah. Ooh. Blue Lock House Band. That's a project. Yeah, because then they could expand it into a full, we only have like a minute, but it has this wonderful piano cadence to it.
2: I'll tell you guys, Ken is very lucky. He's got so many strands of, of, of what he does, and I think he really enjoys teaching. He's very lucky, but they are luckier. They're so lucky to have a guy like that. Who invests in them. He's fun, entertaining. His IQ, I'm i i I'm in awe of the guy. And these students, I hope they look back 10, 20, 30 years time and think, wow, we were really lucky to be in the presence of Kenneth
3: Womack. He's such a gentleman. Well, Gary went to two of our courses. He went to uh, Sergeant Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour yeah. and actually brought a lot of emotion to, uh, unexpectedly, we had visited the dakota the day before the magical mystery tour session gary had never been there he'd never been to strawberry fields and uh i'm overcome whenever i go there i really can't spend much time there it just you know it's chilling and i didn't know jonlyn and gary knew John and quite well and swam in a swimming pool etc and uh new yoko etc and was quite moved while we were there, and we were listening to that lovely, unvarnished version of Across the Universe, mm-hmm. that first take where it's just John and the guitar, and it's so perfect. Gary had to leave, you know, and and I understand why. It was so brutal and real. And the previous day, I paid my
2: respects to John's memory, and I thought of him typing out the letter that he wrote to us as a family. And his final line was, Gary, you are the man of the house now. Look after your mum. And I'm looking up where his apartment was. thinking that's where he typed this thing. So I walked away from the Dakota. And the first thing I come across is someone walking a bulldog. There's a bulldog coming at me. I'm thinking, hey, bulldog. <laughs> <laughs> when we leave Ken's house, the Uber pulls up. And the windscreen is all grazed and cracked. Like, you know, my dad with the Beatles in the Vat. i think thinking, wow, <laughs> it made me smile. I, on both occasions, I looked up and said, okay, John. Okay, Dad." <laughs> you kind of read into stuff, don't you? Like um, Julian Lennon with the white feather and things. Mm-hmm. Purely coincidence.
0: I don't know, Gary. That's quite a lot of coincidences. Yeah. I don't know if I'd chalk it up to just some random nature.
2: We tend to look for patterns. As human beings, you look for patterns in things in life, don't you?
1: I think we have to.
2: For reassurance.
1: Try and make sense of it some way. Indeed. So what's next for the Mal Archives? What are we going to be seeing?
3: Like a super deluxe situation? They have talked about packaging it somehow with book one, but I don't know where that will go. Our focus is on assembling the, we have four times the amount of photo allowance, so we have a lot of photos. We're going to take a few of them that are really artistic and beautiful from volume one and go full page because they they just deserve it. But we have many, many more photos to share. We have the complete manuscripts for Mal's memoir that we want to put together facsimile-like so that people have their own copy. We'll also have the diaries annotated, of course, and then the notebook. So there's a lot of material to share. Gary used the phrase rabbit holes. I mean, that's we're hoping people will go down their own Mal Evans rabbit holes with this. There are a lot of uh, just wonderful photos from Ringo's place, from all those Guy Fox nights and his New Year's parties, and from Friar Park, uh, when they first went there and all the windows are broken, <laughs> you know, lovely photos. And we have lots of uh, family vacations with George and Patty, and there's one un- photo that I, I adore where they're, they're off on the Aegean Sea, and I, I think it's Gary and one of George's little cousins, and uh, Patty and George, of course. It's a tourist shot, but it's it's beautiful and poignant because we know that George and Patty didn't have children. It's uh there's just so many so many stories embedded in these photos.
0: Isn't that photo um I'm thinking of the one you showed at the presentation, but is that the one where George is reading the kids a book? Yes. I yes. love that photo.
2: The Rupert Bear annual. I've still got that annual.
1: Aw. The Rupert Bear and Paul did so much with Rupert Bear later on.
2: Yeah, Paul was running really into Rupert Bear. Yeah. I, I had um, quite an in-depth conversation in February 97 with Paul about um, ownership of songs, whether it should be Lennon, McCartney, McCartney, Lennon. Uh, and I'm going to ask you guys, do you think Dom would have ever thought about that if he'd have lived, or would he have just said, it's just Lennon, McCartney?
1: Well, I don't know. When you're Lennon and Lennon, McCartney, maybe you don't care as much as with your McCartney. Because you're always going to be the first guy, <laughs> yeah. aren't you?
0: I think that they both were like quick to say, "Oh, that was a Paul song, or that was a John song." But I agree yeah. with Erica. It's like I think McCartney would take, you know, more umbrage. He certainly did, and still does, you know, with not having his name first.
2: My wife and I watched the seven and a half eight hours, and we looked at each other and said, "Paul was the man." You know, he was, <laughs> and if if you wind it back, was Paul always the man?
3: Pretty close to it. Yeah, I mean, he was acting as musical director. Uh, we know on the song "I Want to Hold Your Hand," we have all the takes. Those are one of the few that are all out in the world. I mean, he was he was the musical director, you know. Authorship. I was doing a lesson last night on "It Won't Be Long," and which is a Lennon McCartney song. But you know damn well George Harrison wrote the distinctive lick
2: mm-hmm. that
3: down, no, 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 no. You know, I mean that makes the whole song. So, you know, we think so much better, I think, now about authorship, you know, people who have a claim usually receive the claim now, you know.
0: Well, especially, you know, that Yoko now has authorship, partial authorship of Imagine. you know, which I think was so important because you look at the lyrics and they're like, you know, a poem, one of her poems, you know.
3: And, you know, we're just better at that. um, And we should be. The Beatles are still... In the world of the solitary genius, when we think about authorship and the 19th century and, you know, Jane Austen or what have you, you know, where a person's up at night writing by candlelight and it's all coming out of here onto the page. I mean, another Lennon and McCartney song that isn't is Come Together. Is that the same song without Ringo's drum cadence? Hell no. It makes the song. Or Rain.
1: You can't pull any one of those four men out of most of these songs and have the same piece.
3: Or the bass part of something. I mean, my God, it's it's a jazz symphony.
1: The more we get these, these Giles Martin demix remixes, I think even the more we're hearing just how the individual parts are such big contributors to the whole.
2: It's the alchemy of the four guys in the studio with geniuses like George Martin in tow. Yeah, the alchemy, but then I coined the word malchemy. I think my dad put so much malchemy into the mix as well. I love it. Every Beatles song has got
3: malchemy.
1: And I will say, I like malchemy more than I like malcontent. I like malchemy. Yeah,
3: yeah. You like malchemy. <laughs> yes. I don't know if we'll get any traction, but I could see calling book two malchemy.
1: I love that.
3: I love it. I I coined the term, so I'm quite pleased with that.
1: You better get the authorship (laughs) credit for it. You coined it. Yeah, yeah.
0: You you heard it here, folks. (laughs) Change history, yes. Yeah. (laughs) But how nice is it, Gary, that, you know, things kind of come full circle with Peter Jackson's Mal machine. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing?
1: How did you feel when you heard it was called Mal? Um,
0: I, I watched the
2: YouTube segment where he, I think he mentions my dad 11 times or something. And he said, yeah, and it's like Mal's in the studio with us, you know, for him to embrace the spirit of my dad, I think of all the things that have happened, my dad would love that so much.
1: Well, that's why Peter Jackson was the perfect person to do all these things. I mean, he's one of us. He understands things like the power that Mal had to make all of this work.
0: It gives me chills when I think about it. Just it's just so lovely, you know.
1: And we know Mal is going to change the world with the things it can do for
0: music.
3: Yeah, Thank you, Peter Jackson. Thank you guys for having us. We sure appreciate it.
0: Thank you guys so much again for coming on and talking about Mal, the book. It is such a good book. Like it, Eric and I every day were like, okay, we have to like take a break and actually do work.
1: The number of screenshots we've texted back and forth, like, look at this package, can you believe it?
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course there are some
2: dark side. But the dark side are totally eclipsed by the light side of my dead story. Thank you very much, ladies. It's very gracious of you to talk to me.
0: And Gary, it was lovely to talk to you. Yes, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Yes,
1: Ken is always a pleasure.
0: Yes, Mr. Womack. Guys are wonderful. Gary, so nice to see you. Take care. Lovely to see you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Ken Womack and Gary Evans for hanging out with us and talking about this fabulous new book on Mal Evans' life. It's available now wherever you find your books. And be sure to keep up with both Ken and Gary for news of volume two of the Mal Evans story. And thanks again to you for listening to BC the Beatles.
0: As always, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now, and give us a rating slash review so other Beatle maniacs can find us.
1: And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond.
0: Remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com as well. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.